This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes. Okay, three, two, one, it's down. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron here on KCUU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. And today we have a great show to do for you today. Uh, but before we get started, we just want to remind you that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by contacting us on our Facebook page where we are, The Big Electron. Or you can also reach us on via email mm-hmm. by uh, thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. Yeah. Or if you're on Anahita's mom, you can text her. <laughs> I... As it is Easter today, I have a feeling that they're doing family things without me and that I'm not going to get a text message. Okay. Well, we shall see. We'll see. (laughs) Do you want to introduce our guest? I do, but real quick before we get to that, I want to tell our listeners about the great thing that happened on Friday. What happened on Friday? Well, Jackie, (laughs) our host, was inducted into the Rollins Society, which is a very prestigious honor society here on Mizzou's campus. Woohoo! Yeah. So congratulations, Jackie. Thank you. It's um it's an awesome honor. Mm -hmm. It is, it is indeed. And it was uh by con- coincidence, I guess, um, the guest that we have today was actually my nominator, yes. <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> and I don't think we planned this. It just sort of happened. Um, but right. it was really cool. So um, do you want to introduce yourself? So my name is Rocio Rivera, and I'm an associate professor in the Division of Animal Sciences here at Misu. Awesome. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. So um, we like to start all of our conversations with our guests with the same question, which is, how did you get into science? Funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) Science is something that happened to me. It it was not planned. Um, I was never all that interested in science, I guess. It was just a class I took in school always, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a vet from the time I remember because I liked animals, and if you like animals, you become a vet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I went to school in Puerto Rico and um, hoping to go to vet school, but we don't have a vet school there, so I transferred to Iowa State. And um, a junior, as a junior, I transferred, and then I had to take a reproduction class uh, as part of my curriculum in animal sciences. Okay. And I just fell in love with the topic. Mm. And um, so I asked the professor if... What else you have to do to learn about that? He said, come to the lab, and I never left. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so that's kind of when I realized that science was something that you did for a living. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, so the class was reproductive? Reproductive physiology. Okay. In, um, it's everything, but really more farm animals, comparative reproductive physiology. Okay. Mm. So this this was undergrad? Yeah, I was a junior. So and, and it was this was like a pre-vet. What was your major? So I was animal science. Okay. And then I, I minor in pre-vet. Or, mm-hmm. You know, animal science is uh, is same here at Misu. It's a um, uh, major that many students that want to go to vet school do because the classes will prepare you for vet school. Mm-hmm. And um, 
so, you know, it's agriculture and I was there sort of by default. I have fallen in, in, in love with animal sciences now, but, um, just because it was the major that took you to vet school. Mm-hmm. And, and so you'll have to take the specific vet school classes and the major classes and reproduction was a major class. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that, you know, I, I went into that lab. I did undergrad research, did some presentations, um, and I stayed in that lab to do my master's. Fun. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. So how was it to changing, changing that man- mindset of, or understanding that, oh, I really don't want to be a vet, a vet but instead I want to be a, a researcher? You know, it, it was interesting because when you say something from when you're like, what, five or six, you know, <laughs> and everybody thinks that this is what you're going to do and you go back home and it's like, so how are the preparation for vet school? Are you in vet school yet? And you say, uh, no, not really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they, you know, you feel like almost a failure. And it's really funny because I advise students here and uh, most of our advisees, animal science about 70% pre-vet. And most of our advices, you know, many of them go through this, that they want to go to vet school and then they change their mind because they found something they really fell in, fell in love with. And, you know, many of them even cry. It's like, you know, but my entire family and town, they're thinking that I'm going to be a vet. <laughs> it's like nobody that loves you, uh, you know, would want anything except what you actually love to do. And, and that's right. kind of how it was for me. And... You know, and they still think I'm in school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. But I am, right? Yeah. That's the definition of a professor, somebody Mm -hmm. that went to school and never left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's uh, that's kind of how it was, yeah. So you did uh, undergrad research there, and then you said you did your master's in there as well? I did my master's there, yeah. I worked with uh, pig embryos, pig reproduction, but it was uh, mostly embryology. Pigs? Uh, pigs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that that's what you said. Yeah, P-I-G, yeah, pigs. Uh, like, <laughs> oink, oink. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we were looking at fertility issues with uh, with two different um, breeds of pigs, one that is prolific, one that isn't. So we're trying to figure out what, uh, what in the uterus makes that happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the research... I did some of that as an undergrad, and then uh, I even presented in a in a local meeting, mm-hmm. which I almost fainted. <laughs> <laughs> but I gave a twelve-minute presentation in about six. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I stayed there, and and then I did my master's there, and then I went to work as a lab technician mm-hmm. at um, University of Florida. Oh, okay. uh, and I was there for seven and a half years working as a lab tech and two years into that program or into being a lab tech, I decided to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, in the same lab, in the same lab. So, so it was, uh, it was a very long day that lasted five years. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you decide to pursue your PhD? You know, again, the truth, you know, <laughs> the actual truth. Um, I've always liked to learn, um, so when I was um, when I was a technician, I, I continued to take classes, and um, so I took like 
one class every semester for the first two years just to stay updated and stay thinking, you know. And uh, so a student, a, a friend of mine asked me, um, how was the PhD going? Because mm -hmm. I knew I had a master's and I said, well, I'm not doing my PhD. And he said, why not? They said, well, I'm not really interested right now. At the moment I wasn't mm -hmm. in doing my PhD. I just like to take classes. And he said, well, in five years, you're either going to have a ton of classes or you're going to have a PhD. Mm. So I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. So that's, that's kind of how I started. And, you know, yeah. eventually it was time for, you know, after a while, mm -hmm. it was time for me to, to leave. So my mentor said, just like, go have your own lab now. You're ready. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I'm glad I did it at the time because um, I wasn't thinking along those lines. But by the end of five years, I definitely was. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that I had everything that was required to get the PhD. So Good. Well, I think that's um, something really important for our listeners, especially if they're younger um, mm -hmm. and interested in science to hear is that it's not always a straight path. Oh, no, not at all. No. And and it has to be a passion, right? That's mm -hmm. that's what it's always been for me. It's never you never wake up and like, oh my god, I have to go to the lab, especially when it's at two in the morning, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is the time I did my PhD. It was at two in the morning oh my for gosh. years because I work with cow embryos, cow <laughs> as in C O W. <laughs> the moon. <laughs> and uh, we got ovaries from. Uh, Abattoirs, right? And um, the time I work with two cell embryos, and um, that's the time we produce them in the lab by in vitro mm -hmm. fertilization, and that's the time they were at the two cell stage. So that's when I had to use them. I see. At two in the morning. At two in the morning. You're gonna like switch them to where it would be at two p.m. No, because the the ovaries, the you know, the abattoir where the cattle's passed to, uh, we collected the tissues there. Th that's when they were sacrificed mm -hmm. in the morning, like by seven, eight, you know, the, the, our person had to drive two hours to collect them and then bring them to the lab. And then we would perform the in vitro maturation of the oocytes. And then uh, the next day we fertilize and that's timed. Mm -hmm. There's no mm -hmm. moving biology around, right? <laughs> <laughs> it happens when it happens. Uh, okay, so you started with Pigs. Moved on to with cows. <laughs> how cows? How different is the reproductive systems of those two animals? Um, they're very similar. Mm -hmm. Very similar. Placentation is a little bit different. Of course, the gestation length is a little bit different mm -hmm. when things happen. Uh, the size of the the oocytes and the embryos, which is what I work with, it's just about the same. Maybe a mm -hmm. few microns difference. Uh, 120 oh. microns for the cow, maybe about 100 microns for the pig, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Also very tiny. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very small. tiny. Mm -hmm. But a cow, a cow outside, you can see with the naked eye. It, it's about oh. the limit. Of mm -hmm. course, you need a microscope, mm -hmm. but it's about the limit. It's like the point of a pencil. Mm. Um, um, yeah, and then for the, so I did that. And so for the PhD, I was working on the effects of heat shock. On, uh, on embryo development and... Um, of what? Embryo development. No, but the word that you said before? Heat shock. Oh, heat he shock. Heat oh, gotcha. Shock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in Florida, and really in every part of the world, in every species, 
but particularly in dairy cattle, uh, heat stress affects um, fertility and um, because they're high producing cattle, so they have high metabolic rate and, mm-hmm. and on top the heat stress affects them. So we're trying to understand what makes, it's a multifactorial mm-hmm. um, effect and we're trying to understand why um, the embryos are so sensitive, especially at the two cell stage because mm-hmm. they do not have, their DNA is not yet active. So they're surviving on everything put in by the mother's oocyte. And uh, so I identified that there is mitochondrial swelling and the microtubule, the, the different part of the cytoskeleton get affected differently, mm-hmm. increases reactive oncidian species and a bunch of different things like that. So that's kind of what, what my PhD dissertation was about. Which would be really important in Florida because it's really hot and right. they have a lot of cattle. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's very important for the economy mm-hmm. in the U.S. really. So that was the PhD. And really? You guys have a lot of cattle in Florida? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of cattle. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> and uh, We had, this was a, when I was in high school, we had the most cowboys of any state for a while, which I thought was interesting that there were still people who define oh, themselves yes. as cowboys. Absolutely. I didn't know that, let mm-hmm. alone know yeah. that Florida Absolutely. had the most. I still have like that picture in my head of mm-hmm. old westerns. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Um, yeah, so that's what I did with, with um, and then I, you know, of course I was a lab tech, so I was a full-time technician. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of the PhD? No, the PhD was on the side. I was a lab, I, I was a full-time technician and I did the PhD. All seven years? Yeah, seven and a half years. Wow. So, wow. So, and, yeah, I, ran a, <laughs> I can't I, even I, imagine. I, I, I managed a, a quite very productive lab, um, a funny joke that I remember, um, there were people there around the clock because everybody had was working with different type of embryos or whatever it was. And um, so I remember the, the cleaning crew asking us if we could please be <laughs> not in the lab from four to six in the morning one day <laughs> so they could clean. <laughs> So we, we, you know, we plan accordingly. So weeks before we, we, make, we I, I explained this to everybody. So nobody would be there. So. But, uh, no, we saw each other in um, pajamas quite often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what did that lab look like? So what equipment did you use? So it was very, it was all... Um, Embryo work, um, so, you know, microscopes, pipettes, um, mm-hmm. and I did everything was cellular. I did cell, you know, a little bit of cell biology. It was mostly embryo cultures and treatments. Uh, other people in the lab were doing some molecular biology. I did not. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I didn't... Um, you know, it was just, there were about 10 people at the time and everybody had their own projects, a very, very busy lab. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people worked at the farm, so their projects was primarily at the farm mm-hmm. with cattle. Uh, everybody participated in everybody's research, especially when you work with large animals, you have to, you know, it's, it's safe and you need it. <laughs> it's not that you can have your own cow with you yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Maybe this is my pig. only one that I'm studying. <laughs> But, I will uh, take it with me. 
No, but it, it was fun. It was fun. And um, so, it, I mean, I like I said, I've never really done any molecular biology, any PCR, anything with nucleic acids um, at that level until I went to my postdoc. Mm -hmm. And um, so there I was trained by an undergrad in how to do... PCR and all these different molecular techniques. So it was really awesome. And so where were you a postdoc? I postdoc at Penn, University oh. of Pennsylvania. I was in two labs there and um, and I work with mouse embryos. Oh, okay. <laughs> Again, with the reproductive system. With embryos. With embryos. Oh, right, just embryos. And, and that one... Um, It was, it was quite interesting because uh, it, that's where I sort of made a connection. When I was at Florida, I made um, what's called a large calf. A, uh, it's a calf with a syndrome, large offspring syndrome. And that is the result of uh, producing embryos in culture. Okay. Uh, by, by what we call art of assi or assistive reproductive technologies. Mm -hmm. And um, so the first... Calf, art calf, it was produced in the 80s, I think, 88. And the first report of this large offspring was in the mid-90s. Oh, okay. And um, so, you know, it was very weird that, that these calves, and sometimes twice the size of a normal calf, they always require C-sections or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which harm the calf and the dam, right, the mother. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I was asked to produce, um, there was this cow that was a prize cow and she had lymphoma, so she was going to be donated to the vet school. And uh, I was asked if I could produce embryos from her ovaries to try to save the genetics. And I did, <clears throat> but I got a large calf. Mm -hmm. He was uh, twice the size, uh, normal, uh, the Holstein, Holstein is the breed, the normal size of a bull calf is about 45 kilograms and this one was 98 kilograms oh my oh. goodness that is so, insanely big yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's la la called large offspring syndrome so i was very interested in that syndrome um i kind of studied it for a little bit but it wasn't part of my phd so i kind of focused on what i was working <laughs> so i could finish <laughs> And, but it's always something that stayed in the back of my mind. And then I went to the University of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. where I worked on, I joined a lab that was trying to understand how embryo culture affects the epigenome mm -hmm. of, uh, of embryos. And the epigenome is, it's that machinery that controls the way the DNA is read and manipulated, right? And um, so... They have seen that the embryo culture, or as part of this assisted reproduction, affects the mm -hmm. the DNA methylation, which are these switches like mm -hmm. the, that turn on and off genes, um, affect the this um, the DNA methylation in embryos, in mouse embryos, and uh, so I joined the lab to kind of study that, and while doing that. I realized and I learned um, that the syndrome that I've seen in cattle, this large offspring syndrome, also occurs in humans. Mm. And in humans, it's called Beckwith-Witherman syndrome. Okay. So um, then 
during my postdoc years, I started working on the epigenome, specifically genomic imprinting, which is uh, there are this number of um, genes that are only expressed from the paternal chromosomes mm -hmm. or the maternal chromosomes. And uh, so every mammal has maternal and paternal genes, right? And these genes, about 100, are expressed from either chromosome, and they always have to be expressed like that. And these genes drive development uh, of the fetus and the placenta. So it's now known that, that these assisted reproductive technologies can affect the way those genes are expressed by turning on and off switches. Hmm. So that's kind of where I made the connection with beckwith Wiedemann syndrome and large offspring syndrome. And then, so when I joined Misu, that's kind of what we're working on um, with uh, cow embryos, using as a model to understand why beckwith Wiedemann syndrome is more often seen in children conceived by assisted reproduction than the natural population. And also to understand why it happens in cattle, because it is a big economical problem also for cattle. Awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. So before we get into more details into that, we're going to take a short musical break and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron here on KCOU Columbia 88.1 FM. Rainbow bend, where does the universe end? Floor. Do you know the world from A to Z? Astronomy, biology, chemistry, zoology, science and technology. It's fun you see. Public service message from the National Science Foundation. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Um, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Rivera about her research. Um, she was telling us about her path to getting here to Mizzou, and now um, now that she is a professor here. So you were talking about you do what, Dan? <laughs> I do what? You do what? <laughs> I have fun. <laughs> <laughs> with cows? Or with cows. pigs or mice? Or pigs, mice. mice. <laughs> no, so the theme of the lab, I guess, the, the overall goal is to understand how the use of assisted reproduction, mm -hmm. uh, these techniques that are used to conceive a child or uh, for experimentation purposes, how they affect the way the DNA is read. So mm -hmm. the epigenome of these, uh, of these gametes, the oocyte, the sperm, and, and the early embryo. Mm -hmm. and how that can um, translate into uh, developmental errors and um, malformations. And we're specifically focusing on two um, um, congenital overgrowth syndromes, uh, which in human is called beckwith wiedemann syndrome and in cattle is called large offspring syndrome. We have shown that they are the same syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, based on the epigenome and the signatures and, and phenotypes. And um, so we're trying to understand um, what is it that we're doing during those very first days um, after fertilization or before fertilization even mm -hmm. that can make the DNA be read incorrectly and then you have developmental problems. Hmm. So, so when you say epigen epigenome, <coughs> mm -hmm. It's 
like epigenetics. So how something you do now will affect offspring in a couple generations. Right. So so the um, I guess epigenetics uh, refers more to to a, a particular gene or region of the of the DNA. Now with all of these genome-wide technologies that are available, the term kind of has changed to the epigenome. Mm-hmm. So meaning the all of the different combinations of all of the different modifications and modifiers and mechanisms that make the DNA behave the way it does mm-hmm. in every single cell, which you know has the same DNA. So um, the epigenome, it's a uh, it's it's a good thing. People, you know, in the popular press, um, the, they have taken hold of, of epigenetics and the epigenome. And unfortunately, um, most of what's published has to be uh, or has been about the epigenome or epigenetics being bad. Mm-hmm. You know, how environment affects your genes and how disease can happen. And of course, all of that happens. But uh, without the epigenome, we would not exist, mm-hmm. okay? And um, so every single cell in the body, every single tissue has a specific um, set of information that has to occur in order for that tissue, that cell type to develop. And that's the, that's the charge of the epigenome, okay? Now, because it's, um, it's labile, it's something that is continuously changing uh, based on specific cues, physiological cues and mm-hmm. cellular cues. If um, something were to happen at that time in which the information that was supposed to be received by the epigenome, by the machinery, was uh, not conveyed correctly, uh, say something in the environment, a toxic end, whatever you eat, whatever you smoke, whatever you drink, you know, anything really, stress can actually affect the epigenome. Then the information oh, no. will be conveyed. <laughs> bad for grad students. <laughs> But, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be bad, right? It's That's going true. to respond to that environment in, always, mm-hmm. in, in order to make your DNA respond in a way that mm. would be appropriate for that environment. So right? a grad student that procreates with another grad student will have a stress-resilient <laughs> child. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. <laughs> do, do not quote me in that. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm hoping to take uh, out of this. But, but the class. I was thinking more negatively, so I'm glad that you went into the hopeful way of. Oh, yeah. So that kid can go through grad school uh, right. and not stress. And not stress out. about it. Right. Yeah. No, no. But, it, but it is, I mean, it's, it's something that it, when you read the popular press, usually mm-hmm. it means bad, you know? Mm-hmm. But it is not bad, it's required. And it's important. So the difference between, if I understand this correctly, the difference between the genome, that is the DNA, and the epigenome is just the on and off switches that happen on the genome. Right. So so epi means above. So uh, genome, DNA would be, you know, just the sequence. Mm-hmm. And then epigenome is anything that's above the DNA. And um, the purest would call only there is this one modification that's called DNA methylation and the peers would say that that's the only epigenetic modification because that's the only one that actually occurs on DNA Mm -hmm. oh I see everything else it's uh, 
proteins uh, happen to the proteins that are associated with DNA, with, which uh, they're called histone proteins, for example. These histones, um, the, the way I, I look at it is uh, the, the DNA wraps around these histone proteins, right, in order to, to take a very large molecule and tighten it uh, into a very small uh, nucleus. And they serve as architectural proteins to, to um, make the, the, these molecules smaller to fit in that small uh, uh, nucleus. But they also have, they also pass a lot of information to DNA by being themselves modified and, and causing the opening and closing of DNA. And um, so I think of it as an accordion player with mm. the accordion being DNA and the accordion player either opening the accordion and, and making the DNA accessible for for factors and proteins to read it or to act on it or to, you know, the, if the accordion player closes the DNA or the accordion, so then it would not be accessible. And that's what these proteins do. They uh, help release the DNA or help tighten the DNA to make it, um, to prevent factors from reading it or allow factors to read it. So, for example, a gene that should be expressed or a piece of DNA that should be expressed in your brain, um, you know, that piece of DNA would be accessible. And a piece of, that same piece of DNA would most probably be closed in the liver because it's not needed there. Mm. Okay, so, mm -hmm. but there's nothing wrong with the DNA. It's just the way that it's, uh, it's wrapped so it's not accessible. Mm -hmm. So I have a question going back to the um, embryos. How do you know, I guess this is kind of a, I don't know how to word this. How do you know it's going to be a large off, um, a large offspring that, embryo? That is the question. <laughs> that is the question. So uh, that's the, that's really what we're trying to, to do. Mm -hmm. And, and, but that will be, you know, we've been working on this for nine and a half years now, and we just have a few little genes, and you know, <laughs> we've been able. It's very slow and tedious work, mm -hmm. um, but uh, that is the goal of the lab. Hopefully, to to be able to, excuse <coughs> me, to be able to uh, find these signatures, so we can identify these embryos before their transfer, specifically for agriculture mm -hmm. because uh, this is something that is not reported, but um, just recently I got a call from um, an embryo transfer company because um, I guess approximately, they can say up to like 10% of these embryos that can transfer can develop that syndrome and that's really a problem for the farmer because it's very high it's very, yes so it's not only the cost of the embryo and and this is done in uh, in cattle to uh, increase genetic merit mm -hmm. so increase the the gen genetics of the the herd in a in a shorter um in a shortened uh, period of time um because the, uh, the gestation or the pregnancy of cattle is the same as human. It's two, 280 days. So uh, you can take all sites from a, from a good cow and then make all these embryos and transfer them to, to, you know, average cattle. And they'll just gestate the, the fetus. 
But if then, you know, you have the large offspring that it's, there is a high likelihood that it will die mm-hmm. and that it will affect the mother in the process. So um, it is currently affecting producers and, um, you know, it's hard to put a price on that. But, um, but it is happening. And, and that is the goal, really, to try to identify if we can, by taking one cell of an embryo before we transfer it to the cow, if we can identify the potential of large offspring. Mm-hmm. By, as you said, monitoring <coughs> the epigenome. The epigenome, yeah. Okay. Hopefully, uh, you know, that, that, that would be the easier signature or, or a specific gene that is expressed. But yeah, we're, we're tackling both, uh, you know, transcriptome, which will be all of the different messages, mm-hmm. and also the epigenome. Uh, currently in humans, this, this signature that is looked at only after children are born. So mm-hmm. once, once children are born and they have a specific phenotype, they have very varied phenotypes, but if they have one of the various phenotypes, they will do a molecular test of the epigenome looking for a particular signature. And, with, um, and if they have that fig- signature, they are uh, scribed the syndrome at the epigenetic level. Uh, but only 50% of individuals will have that signature. So we've seen that same signature in mm-hmm. our large offspring. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying also to do is to find a signature that will be better than 50%. Mm-hmm. And we're collaborating with a group at the University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with Dr. Jennifer Kalish, who's the curator of the beckwith Williman syndrome uh, registry, and uh, so hopefully we'll be able to take it from the bench to bedside, so so we can identify this potential better. So, do these kids like when when it happens in humans? Is it like large offspring too? I'm not very familiar <coughs> with the yeah with the, the Beckwith-Williams syndrome is uh it's um, the, the the newest numbers. It's a low low incidence syndrome. The newest numbers predict about one in 11,000 mm-hmm. uh, children naturally conceived. That is increased by 5.2 in children conceived by art. Oh, wow. And oh. Um, That's a lot. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot, but still a low incidence syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it is epigenetic in nature, especially in the art children. So, so something happened during um, embryo culture that affected the way the DNA was read and, and caused this overgrowth. There is always the question, though, with humans, if the infertility itself is causing some of this. And, and that's something that, that still needs to be teased out. But at least in animals, uh, and, and there is a case in humans that's pretty clear that it was the assisted reproduction and not infertility. Mm-hmm. But at least in animals, uh, animals don't suffer infertility. So the fact that we see it, we know that we are affecting something. Uh, I am not against art. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great technology, but I think we really need to to understand it better and try to figure out what, how to minimize any adverse outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. But any great technology, there can still be optimization. Abs- absolutely. And, and that's really the, the whole point of this is like, how can we improve on mm-hmm. what we have, which I think is a great thing. And... Um, but for the human, they will have um, 
the main phenotypes will be a very large tongue. It can stick out a few uh, inches. Usually has to be repaired by um, cosmetic surgery, mm-hmm. which of course causes problem for feeding and and uh, other breathing. And uh, they will have umbilical hernias. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, all of the organs can be outside of the body, covered by a very thin membrane. So all of that can be repaired again by cosmetic surgery. Um, let's see, they have um, they have ear malformations, um, and we don't really understand why. We've seen that in, in our cattle with ear malformations, the large tongues, the umbilical hernias. And they are, the, the main um, phenotype, I guess, is there in the 97th percentile of birth, uh, weight and growth and and, um, oh, wow. and size. Mm-hmm. So they're very large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how we describe our large offspring, our experimental animals. That's how we describe them as being 97 percentile of, of the average. And, uh, but all of that is fine. They continue to be large during, after birth. But all of that doesn't really cause any problems to these kids, except having to have major surgeries. Mm-hmm. But what does, uh, which is a lot of healthcare money, it's uh, when those children are born and they're recognized as being BWS, they will be followed for eight years with uh, blood draws every three months or so and, and a lot of different uh, analysis, medical analysis, because they have an increasing sense of cancers, several mm-hmm. childhood cancers, mm-hmm. which can, which is if caught in time, they can be um, you treated, know, treated very well. Mm-hmm. But but this is a, I mean, it's, it's a problem for the kid. It's a problem for the parents mm-hmm. and, and the healthcare, right? Because system, as it's, uh, you know, you imagine a kid going to get blood every three months or so. Mm-hmm. And ultrasounds and they're the, the main cancer is cancer of the kidney, then liver, uh, muscle. And uh, so that's kind of what we're trying to figure out if, if with our cow model, if there is any signature that will be indicative of the ver- different uh, phenotypes and, and specifically the cancers. So every child will have its specific um, treatment mm-hmm. and not have to be all like everybody doing the same thing. So you keep saying the word phenotype. What is the phenotype? Phenotypes, the characteristics, how, how it looks. Uh, what, what, what are the, the, the things that we see? Okay, Outside? So, right. The, okay. the large tongue, mm-hmm. the hernia. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the, the organs outside of the belly. Um, is this also how it happens in cows? So we have seen all of those characteristics mm-hmm. also. Okay. Uh, we've seen in... Um, We've seen them, we have in the, uh, one of the fetuses in the lab is missing an ear. Mm. Um, others have large tongues, others have umbilical hernias. Mm-hmm. And um, that's all how it looks, right? Mm-hmm. But at the epigenetic level, we've seen similar signatures on the DNA of the switches being turned on and off, mm-hmm. the same as in human. So we, we we really think that the, the two syndromes are the same syndrome. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I think that the cow is a is a very good model for this syndrome because the type of technologies that are used in humans to produce humans are the same that are causing this syndrome in, in cattle. So. so I have a question. Do you ever go um, to, to the cattle that have large offspring syndrome or, or to the children that have BWS, do you ever look at their offspring also? So we haven't done that. And um, the expectation, if it is not genetic, so genetic meaning that there is a, a DNA mutation or a piece of DNA is missing or something, especially in these genes that are ex- supposed to be expressed from only the maternal chromosome or the paternal chromosome. These are the genes that are involved in this syndrome. Uh, there is a, a percent of these individuals that have genetic mutations. Okay, mm-hmm. so those you would expect to pass depending on which parent passed them. Mm-hmm. If it is epigenetic, the expectation is that it will be all erased during the the next reproductive cycle. So when when the because you know you have to think of it this way: the DNA is passed from a cell that's that's a, what's called a somatic cell, right? A, a cell that has a a final um, function. Okay. Eventually that cell is going to become um, a gamete, right? An oocyte or a sperm cell, depending whether it's in a male fetus or a female fetus. So the information that was in that somatic cell, in that terminal cell, now has to be completely erased mm-hmm. and has to be reacquired. And now it has to be reacquired as being... Uh, an oocyte or a sperm cell. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in that erasure, all of that information should be gone and mm-hmm. reset again. And then when, when the next reproductive cycle, when the oocyte or the egg and the sperm cell come together, they are gametes, but now they form a one-cell embryo. Mm-hmm. And that one-cell embryo is, I guess, somatic. So the information has to be erased again mm-hmm. and say, you're no longer a gamete. You're no longer an oocyte or a sperm cell. Now you have to be a, som- a somatic cell. Mm. So, so the epigenome, it's continuously being rewritten, erased and rewritten. Right. And hopefully it's rewritten correctly. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not good for the... For the baby cows right. or <laughs> the large offspring, rather. Right. Cool. So what is it that you have found um, <clears throat> of, I think you said you, you had seen a couple of uh, specific genes or epigenes that um, are connected to between the, the human and and the cow syndrome? Right. So so there are uh, these regions. So, so these... Um, Imprinted genes, the, the, these are these genes that are expressed either from the maternal chromosome or the paternal chromosome. These genes occur in clusters. So there are many of, uh, in a particular piece of DNA, there will be several of these genes that are expressed only from one or the other chromosome. And um, there is one particular region, mm-hmm. um, doesn't matter, but it's called the KVDMR, that that is supposed to be methylated. It has supposed to be this switch. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be off. 
on the maternal chromosome. Mm -hmm. And in 50% of the children, uh, that switch is on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it allows for... So it allows the expression of a gene that uh, by a very sophisticated manner silences a lot of other genes that Mm -hmm. have to do with growth. Uh, okay. So it just says like, let's just keep on growing. Yeah, yeah. Instead of turning so, off the growth and right. be like, no, and, we gotta be normal. Exactly. And we've seen that same epimutation is called, as mm-hmm. DNA is called mutation, uh, mm-hmm. an error in the epigenome is called an epimutation. So we've seen similar epimutation in cattle, in LOS. Huh? That's cool. That's well, really I mean, it's cool. not cool, but it's really cool. It's like a... That is pretty cool. Okay. So we're getting close to uh, the end of the show and there are a couple of questions that we generally like to ask. Um, Donahita, do you want to start with the first one? Yes. So if all scientific knowledge was erased, what would be the one thing you would want you know, future scientists to know to continue your research? What? Oh, oh lordy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not an easy one. <laughs> you should send that to me by <laughs> <laughs> To continue my research. Mm-hmm. So what would be like the fundamental bit of knowledge that your research is founded off of? Hmm. That, um... that cows are a good model for human oh that's a great one that's what i would like to yes that's a really good one (laughs) yes our genome is very similar epigenome is very similar gestation is the same the develop especially for my research which Mm -hmm. we're trying to understand how the different um phenotypes i guess and the different things that happen for for this syndrome when they occur during gestation Mm -hmm. Uh, all this important developmental cues that happen during um, the, the growth of a fetus occur about this exact same day in, day in human and cattle. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. What and about in pigs? What is, the, what is the pig's gestation period? It's three months, three weeks, three days. <laughs> <laughs> that's really? what it is there. Yeah? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... Pigs uh, with, <laughs> with more invasive procedures like somatic cell nuclear transfer and cloning, they do see uh, the large tongue. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the main phenotype that they've seen. The problem with pigs uh, is that, I guess, it's not a problem, but, but it's, it's something that I see as a, as a shortfall, I guess, of, of them using pig as a model is that pigs are litter-bearing species. Mm. So they have mm-hmm. many offspring, mm-hmm. as opposed to human that has one. Mm-hmm. And these developmental genes, these imprinted genes, have been shown to work differently in, in species that have many offsprings than mm-hmm. in species that have one offspring. So we think that's another reason we think the cow is a good model, mm-hmm. because it, it, the placenta and the... the the communication with the mother and the placenta and the fetus, which these genes are involved in, would perhaps be more similar than in pigs. Mm-hmm. Oh. But I love pigs. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> do you have any pigs? I don't know. Well, I have a lot of piggies in, at home. <laughs> oh, like, <laughs> like decorative pigs. <laughs> many, many, many. <laughs> and the last question we generally like to ask is, um, what, type of uh, what type of advice would you give to anyone who is interested in science? Not necessarily someone who wants to be a scientist, but just someone who is generally interested in science. Hmm. Not, not that they don't, don't necessarily want to be a scientist. But I mean, if, no, they, I mean, wanna, if they want to be a scientist, you know, to keep fine. an open mind. Mm. Mm. I think that's the most important thing, especially for, with the newer information. You know, it changes continuously. So just to keep an open mind and, and find out what, what the facts are. I think that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Rivera, for joining us today on the Big Electron. <laughs> you can you can say her name, her full name. Yeah, Rocio. Rocio will do. Come on, come Rocio on. Rocio Rivera. Come on, roll the R's. I can't roll my R's. <laughs> Rocio Rivera. So pretty. I wish I could. <laughs> I'm the uh, disappointment of my parents <laughs> because I can't roll my R's. <laughs> well, so Dr. Rocio Rivera, there you go. <laughs> thank you again and uh, enjoy the rest of this Easter Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be back next week. You were listening to The Big Electron here on KCOU Columbia 88.1 FM.